Tonight, I want to look together at the Mangala Sutta, which is translated into English here as the highest blessings. It's on page 27 in your chanting book. If anybody doesn't have a chanting book, we've got more in the entryway. Do you want one? No, I haven't. You've got it. Okay, great. Okay. So this is, um, the Mangala Sutta is one of the most chanted and beloved suttas in Theravada Buddhism kind of one of the top three that are traditionally chanted for various reasons, and um, it really, uh, Mangala is translated here as blessings, um, but it's it's also kind of a good fortune. Like, it can mean, you know, this is, this is really good fortune in your life. Now, one of the interesting things, I think, about this sutta is that as you look at each verse, you might think, oh, you know, these are just things that happen to you, you're lucky to have happen to you. I mean, that's kind of what the title seems to imply, or you're being blessed in some way, by some power, perhaps. But that's not what it is at all, really. What you see here are many ways in which we create our own, our own conditions through our choices. If you look at this primarily, these are things we can choose to do. And this is why this is useful to look at as a, an example of the training of the gradual path of development. So as we look at this, first of all, the first, uh, the first verse, if you will, is the setup of the situation. And this is common in the suttas. The Buddha talked to uh, devas or heavenly beings just the way you would talk to human beings. And a lot of times uh, devas are kind of shy of people but they'll come to someone like the Buddha or um, very advanced practitioners, not just the Buddha. There's actually a beautiful story of a lay woman who was visited by some a deva king and told her that Mahamogamana and, and Venerable Sariputta were coming to her town with a lot of monks. And she then sent a message to them to come to her house for the meal. And when they came, they said, how did you know? And she said, oh, this David King so-and-so told me. And they're like, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> and then she said, yeah, it's not the only incredible thing about me. <laughs> <laughs> When my only son 
was young and like in his early 20s and arrested for something he didn't do and executed, there was no change in my mind. I mean, it wasn't like she didn't love her son, but her development was so advanced. And then she goes on to list a number of other things about her meditation experiences, and and she was pretty, pretty cool. Anyway, um, this deva came to the Buddha, as often happens, and asks this question, First saying, devas are concerned for happiness and never long for peace. The same is true for human, humans, humankind. So what then are the highest blessings? So how can we have happiness and peace, basically? And so here the Buddha begins this sort of list of the ways we develop in order to have happiness and peace. And you can look at this first one that starts with avoiding those who are foolish. And this first um, verse, if you will, is called, you could think of it as cultivating conditions for discretion. Like you're really developing the right conditions or cultivating them to have the discretion for how you behave in the world or how you, what, you, what you understand to be helpful and wholesome and what's not. So it's to avoid associating with foolish people and associate instead with wise people and honoring those who are worthy of honor. So you're tuning into who should you admire and who should you pay respects to. And the, the word in the associating with the wise, that that sentence, um, one of the, the Pali word is sevana, and it means a little bit more than associate. It's like really um, following, you know, admiring, emulating. And of course, we really are affected by the people that we spend a lot of time with. There are a couple of similes that I've heard, but um, if you take some rotten fish and you wrap it in banana leaves, and later when you throw the fish away, the banana leaves still smell like rotten fish. And so if, if we're associating with people who are immoral, it's not like we have any kind of negative um, or you know, hateful feelings towards them or anything like that, but we can understand this this kind of discretion that we should have around who we spend time with. Now, it doesn't mean you never spend time with people who are 
doing unwholesome things, but it's not like those are the people if you're um, emulating or kind of uh, absorbing their their style, or even you know, like if we spend time with people who are doing bad things, even if we're not doing them, the Buddha says this, we get that reputation. So we want to be careful. But there are times, of course, good reasons. Um, maybe there's some context within which you can support someone. I don't mean in a way of looking down on at all, but in a way of understanding what's really wholesome and what isn't. And, um, you know, having the, the humility and also the compassion and also the wisdom that helps you to be able to associate with pe- people in an appropriate way, knowing their level of seal and their level of, of moral virtue. So this is a this is a you know the Buddhist starts with this. He re- really recognized how important this is. And it goes along with um, you know thinking about how important your spiritual friendships are, how important your friendships are, and you know how important it is to your development. And the next one we could kind of, the next verse, we can see as uh, establishing secure foundations in your life. So we start by creating these conditions for discretion, and then we're establishing foundations in your life. And by the way, these things, these ways of setting up our life, this can be true for everyone, anyone, no matter what, what tradition you follow or no tradition, you know, like you're just developing your life as a person in the world. These are wise things to pay attention to. You know, if you're raising kids, you want them to have good friends that are doing good things instead of, I remember one night when I was a teenager, I went out with some friends and they started, um, what, I grew up in the country, out in the middle of nowhere, and um, one of the things some of the kids like to do is um, like damage road signs. I never went out with that group again. <laughs> My mom used to tell a story. She had three sisters, and the four of them would go out together. And they were out with some friends or some other young people, and they started doing something wrong, and the four of them got up and left. And I thought, how easy it is when there's four of you. (laughs) 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 Makes it so much easier. (laughs) And, you know, but to think about how important that is, the, the good friendship, the people that you associate with who actually encourage you to keep the precepts, instead of going the other way. And those five precepts are especially, well, those five precepts can pretty much be found in, in every major religion. The last one about intoxicating drink is a little, like, not so clear in some cases, but 
you know, you can you can really see that there's a basic human morality. And then this next this next verse on establishing secure foundations, residing in a suitable place or locality. You know how much difference it makes to live in a place that's safe. My heart always goes out to people who, for various reasons, are stuck in a violent region. That is so hard. Um, I wish we could find ways to eliminate that, but this is samsara, so it's not easy, but whenever possible, to establish a secure foundation for ourselves is to hopefully live in places that are safe and suitable for good development. And then it talks here about the fruits of past good deeds, so the karma that has been built up coming from the things we've done in the past. And this is the one where you can say, well, I can't really choose my past, true enough but we did make choices in the past. And it's important to know that whatever we did in the past, the choices that we make in the present set the course for the future. So we can, you know, once we see how crucial this is to happiness and peace, doing everything we can to set the course for these, um, this merit. So merit's a very interesting uh, word. So one translation is that, you know, the merit from the past, but we're developing merit now. And always, as we're keeping precepts, um, being generous, learning, learning dhamma, learning wholesome things, learning, you know, um, being kind to others. All the good things that we do, we're building merit. If you look at something like the list of um, the ten paramis, you know, like, Kindness and compassion, equanimity, um, virtue, renunciation, you know, the, the whole list there. Every, all of, all, any of that activity is building merit. Coming to this kind of a, a place to practice meditation, this is all creating merit. Merit means a field of goodness. This is what you're building for yourself. This is what you're existing in. This is kind of like the, the pH in the water you're swimming in. You, gotta, you, know, you can really make the difference in the quality of your life and your environment. So here, establishing these foundations, you have already built something up from the past. Every one of you, you wouldn't even be here if that were not true. 
And then you're setting yourself on the right course for the future. So guided by the rightful way, it's really, it's, um, the Pali suggests that you're making this decision. You're setting yourself on this path. It's having the right resolution, the right intention, the right determination to go in the right way. So the next verse is about um, preparing yourself for life. Let's say you think back to when you were, you know, in your teens and your twenties, you know, and you're training yourself for a successful life. So you get a well-rounded education. You develop a skill or a profession. You know the things that set you up for a good life. And then also the, the Buddha put in here well-spoken speech. Speech that's true and pleasant to hear. It doesn't mean you never say things that people don't want to hear. So it's, it's important that we say things that need to be said in a good way when it's appropriate. It doesn't mean that you're just all sweetness and light. Um, we have to be honest and truthful also. That's something we can go into more if anybody's interested. Because there's a lot that the Buddha says about speech. It's very helpful. And then the next, this next one, providing for mother and father's support and cherishing family, ways of work that harm no being. This is, this is um, now you're starting on this kind of part of life where you're really leading a virtuous life in the world. So we've already kind of gotten this you know, proper orientation in the, in the first you know, section where the Buddha is you know, telling you to avoid the certain kinds of people who are doing certain kinds of things, etc. And then you've established the foundation for your good life and you've made these preparations with your training, your education, and now how do you live a virtuous life in the world? This is about relationships. So you're fulfilling responsibilities in a family. Recognizing the importance of respecting your parents and caring for them. And uh, one of the things that is really sweet to see in Sri Lankan families is, and I don't know how much of this is still happening, but traditionally the children in the morning come to their mother and their father and they bow to them. And then in the evening, before they go to bed, they bow to their parents. And there's there's a real um, kind of conditioning laid in there about respecting parents for the fact that they've been, they were our first teachers. They showed us the world. This is what the Buddha says. You know, you can't really repay them for that. 
and how important it is to have our own orientation in that way. Now, of course, we often, of course, have this question come up about what if parents have been really awful uh, in there because of various conditioning they've had and probably a lot of suffering they've had abusive and so on and it is important to figure out how to have boundaries in those cases but still orienting ourselves in a way that respects and with respect and gratitude for what we did receive from them sometimes we have to stay away from even those people who have been so important in our life. But in this case, in the general sense, parents are mostly good enough, if you will. And you can argue about that if you want. (laughs) Maybe arguing isn't the right style, it's more like opening the heart with compassion but also wisdom clear seeing and look at the situation and how leading a virtuous life how this part about how we relate to our parents fits in and then also um, cherishing family so uh, the the that's kind of a broad brush way of translating this, but really, you know, being a good partner, um, caring for your children, if you have children, and then ways of work that harm your being, really a harmless occupation. So not an occupation that causes suffering and uh, destruction of other living beings. And then this next verse, generosity and a righteous life, offering help to relatives and kin and acting in ways that leave no blame. This you could really uh, sort of entitle becoming a pillar in your society. Your generosity, the righteous conduct part, you're really reliable. You help the people around you, the people you're related to, the friends in your life, your neighbors, and your actions are blameless. You're living by the moral precepts, you're developing skill in the way we communicate, and really, um, really someone in your society or social circles that can be respected and depended upon. I wish someone had talked to me like this when I was young. It would have been such a helpful guide for the decisions that you make as you go through your life. And we have this opportunity to reflect on our own lives and see how it went. Because obviously we made a lot of good decisions. And we still may have the opportunity to 
bring our life more in alignment with this path. Because even though we're talking very much about developing in, in the lay life, in the world, this leads all the way to overthinking. So it's a very it's a very powerful statement for the Buddha. And then we have what could be called this verse on personal ethics. Steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, avoiding intoxicants that build the mind and heedfulness in all things that arise. So you're abstaining, you stop doing things that are wrong, you abstain from unwholesome actions. You refrain from drugs and alcohol that cause you to lose your mindfulness and sense of, of what's wholesome and unwholesome and your care and concern about whether you're following what's wholesome and avoiding what's unwholesome. And you're very conscientious in everything that you do in what arises in your experience because you don't want to do things that are bad. Then we come back to this idea of curio to this this, um, these guardians of the world that are our conscience and our prudence. In the next section now, up until now, this is just being a good human being. No matter what you are thinking about spiritually, there's no, this is really about being a good human being in the world. This is so important. This is the basis that's necessary for a good spiritual life. And it's important as practitioners, if we, if we value meditation, if we value spiritual um, development, we have to look at all of these things we just talked about and fill in the blanks, shore up the weak parts, so that we actually can have a solid basis for our spiritual practice. So this next part, now we're starting to get into the spiritual side of things, cultivating inner virtue and wisdom. So when we say that virtue is the basis for our development, it's, you know, there's the external, you know, keeping the precepts, but the internal virtue as well. So let's take a look at that. This, this is translated respectfulness and of humble ways, contentment and gratitude, and hearing the Dhamma frequently taught. So we have here reverence, 
and humility and contentment and gratitude and then the, the seeking out of the Dhamma, listening to the Dhamma frequently. And those, those qualities of reverence, humility, contentment, and gratitude also already have their effect on reducing our ego, reducing our sense of self, our tendency for selfishness, our tendency to want to um, grasp onto and pull towards us what we want, and our tendency to push away what we don't want. And then the next verse, patience and willingness to accept one's faults. Seeing venerated seekers of the truth and sharing often the words of the law. So patience is such a highly valued quality. The Buddha said patient endurance is the highest austerity. Patient endurance is what we really need to be able to stay with the, uh, the practice of dealing with unskillful or unwholesome mental states. And, you know, really um, bringing to the fore, bringing to life the wholesome mental states. And, and being able to listen to what other people are experiencing about us, to really hear advice and feedback. And drop our defensiveness, our tendency to argue back, or to point out the other person's faults. It doesn't help us to do those things. We might feel very strongly that they're on the wrong track and accusing us wrongly or they're saying it in a bad way or they're saying it at the wrong time. And the Buddha did talk about these things and how important it is to give feedback in a good way. But at the end of the day, whatever other people are doing is not so important to us. What we do is really important. That's what makes the, the safe and comfortable, um, maybe those aren't the right words, that's what sets up the conditions and continues to support the conditions for peace and happiness in our own lives. So I've heard recently one of the teachers I really respect say, don't Get worry too, don't worry too much about other people's defilements. <laughs> don't worry too much about other people's unskillful actions. The real deal is with ourselves, and so we want to make ourselves available for advice. And it may feel really counterintuitive, but we can then, you know, evaluate whether or not what we're hearing is true, whether or not it's useful, 
And I mean, I liked Ajahn Chah's way of talking about it. He said, if someone calls you a dog, that some of you could finish this quote, just look to see if you have a tail. <laughs> Don't worry about them, their rudeness or whatever. Because I guess in Thailand, that's one of the worst things they can call you is a dog. But, you know, really just looking at developing ourselves. This is what we have agency over. If you really think about it, what do you have control over? We can't control the people. We try, it does not work. I tried really hard to change my mother. I can't about tell where that went. <laughs> and she was fine, but um, a little challenging. But, you know, it's, it's really our own actions and our own words and our own think, thought, thoughts, the, only, the things that we think about intentionally, those are the things we have control over. That's, what, that's where the choices happen. And so this is really, this whole thing almost is about making those choices. So when we hear advice, uh, the Buddha said, if someone gives you advice, tells you you're doing something wrong, be grateful. And if we see that in ourselves, and we have to really, sometimes we really have to being willing to put ourselves in their position and looking at ourselves so that we can see it. Because, you know, we've got very strong conditioning, probably from lifetimes, certainly from this life. We all have our ways of doing things. We think it's the only way or something, you know, or maybe there are things we don't see that we need to stop, really stop, take it in, listen, see what this other person could be observing there that we can change and let go of our defensiveness. Being defensive doesn't help anything. We think we're protecting ourselves, but it's really not true. We protect ourselves with wisdom and virtue and kindness. And then seeing venerated seekers of the truth, or seeing um, the word is samana, samana dasanam, you're seeing the samanas, you're seeing those who are religious seekers, those who have really dedicated their lives to the spiritual path, and learning from them. And then it says, you know, Sharing off in the words of Dhamma is really about discussion, talking about the Dhamma with your spiritual friends. There's so much I find. There's a lot to learn by hearing what we say as well as hearing what others say about the Dhamma. Even um, there were three arahants living together. One of them was the Buddha's cousin, Anuruddha. 
And then he had two friends that uh, they stayed together for many, many, many years. Uh, Kimbala and Marjani, I think were their names, and they lived together in harmony, um, flowing together like milk and water. With acts of loving kindness, by body, speech, and mind towards each other constantly. And they would be in silence for like five days. Like they would they had their, their methods of taking care of everything in the monastery. Um, you know, who filled the water pots and who took out the leftover food that needed to go into the compost and everything. And if something was too heavy they said another person, one, one of them would come along and help the other one, but they didn't break out in speech over any of that, no. They're just practicing, meditating, but then every five days, they would sit together and talk all night about the Dharma. Nice, huh? Especially if you're a night owl. Sounds really nice. So that's, those are the qualities we want to cultivate to make us ready for awakening. When we're starting to, you know, really see the unskillful qualities falling away or dissolving, the skillful qualities increasing, and the learning listening to good Dhamma reflections, discussing it. And then this this next verse is really the ascent. We start ascending towards realization. It says the holy life lived with ardent effort. So now you might say, well, can I do that as a lay person? I think so. I mean, you look at some people I know, um, and the people in the time of the Buddha, you know, as lay people living lives so dedicated to the spiritual path, definitely their highest priority and their development being so beautiful. I remember meeting this one woman, Shiva Sri Lanka. Um, she was actually a close friend with the woman who became the first bhikkhuni in modern times, Ayakusama. Uh, her name, this lady that I met, I met both of them at that time, but her name was Ranjani de Silva. I think she may still be alive. Ayakusama passed away um, last year, the year before, I think, from COVID. And they were they're well into their, I don't know, 80s probably by now, but it was so lovely meeting this woman. I just wanted to stand next to her. Her energy was so, so lovely. And I met her, I was in Antarctica, I was in White, and I, um, I was living at Amaravati, Bruce Monastery in England, and they came to visit there. And it was just, you know, you just can see, she was a lay woman. You can just see and feel the development and the, and the kindness and the wisdom 
And so don't ever think that you're not living the holy life. It depends on what you're doing. It depends on what you're thinking about. And living it with ardent effort, really setting aside the unuseful things in, in a worldly sense. Um, the word here is austerity, really. But austerity in that you're living a simple life, one that doesn't impinge so much on your practice, if possible. Putting in the effort. And um, there's also the, the word brahmacharya here, so it's a celibate life. And I know a lot of people get to that place in their life at some point, sometimes quite early, um, but oftentimes later in life. And that's uh, something to consider. And then seeing for oneself the noble truths and the realization of nirvana. It's beautiful. This um, direct experience of the Dhamma that really changes our life. And then the next verse it says, although involved in worldly tasks, unshaken the mind remains. Another way to put it is, being un- the mind is not shaken by the vicissitudes of life. I don't think it's really so much about tasks. I think it's more about those worldly winds, the praise and blame, the fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, the gain and the loss. You know, you're not shaken by these things that happen in life that are unavoidable. And the mind is unshaken and sorrowless, beyond all sorrow, spotless, secure. That's what happens when we awake. So this is the fulfillment of the path. And then this beautiful verse at the end, they who live by following this path know victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. And to imagine, okay, I can't choose to be enlightened on my schedule. And if it was easy, we'd all be there already. But if we look at the preparation, there's so much that we can do. And every step that we take in that direction brings more beauty into our life. More peace. More safety. 
So I like to chant this one. You could pick up a pra- you could pick up a practice and chant it down on a daily basis, maybe um, as a reminder. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.